This is Raising Freethinkers. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. Episode 27, Obey. I've always loved condensations, anything that takes a big, complex thing and makes it understandable. Carl Sagan's Cosmic Calendar is one of my favorite examples of this. It imagines shrinking the history of the universe into a single year. If the Big Bang happened at midnight on New Year's Day, on what date would the Earth form? And when do dinosaurs appear and when do people appear? When I was a kid, I think I would have said, okay, Big Bang on New Year's Day, Earth in March, dinosaurs in April, people in May, right? Something like that. But actually, if you reduce the history of the universe to one year, Earth doesn't form until September 14th. Dinosaurs appear on Christmas Eve and disappear on December 28th. And humans don't appear until 10.30 p.m. on December 31st, the last 90 minutes of the year. That analogy snapped this big, complex thing into a focus that I've never forgotten. It helped me understand better. And if you don't know the Cosmic Calendar, Google that. Amazing thing. Now, right after Parenting Beyond Belief first came out, I wondered if I could do the same thing with non-religious parenting. Was there a way to condense this multifaceted thing to find out what was most important, what was less important, and how it differed from traditional religious parenting? I ended up doing this in a number of different ways, coming up with nine best practices and seven secular virtues. Both of those will be future episodes. But one of my favorite captures of non-religious parenting came out of a geeky little past feature on Amazon called a concordance. This is a list of the 100 most frequently used words in a given book. That feature disappeared after a couple of years, which is really too bad. You can learn a lot about the content, approach, and tone of a book by seeing what words are used over and over again. Now, they don't reveal everything about a book, of course. If a concordance says the word mean appears 632 times in a book, does that indicate an obsession with hostility or with definitions or with mathematical averages. And even if it is about being mean, is the book for it or against it? Maybe mean is always preceded by the phrase, please don't be. So no, it doesn't tell you everything, but the Hubble deep field photo doesn't tell you everything about the universe either. It just gives one type of insight, one way of seeing it. Same with these concordances. So I managed to grab the concordances for a few parenting books before Amazon dropped the feature. And I found that comparing the most common words is pretty revealing of the values and priorities in each book. I compared Parenting Beyond Belief, a book about non-religious parenting with multiple contributors, to several other parenting books, including two Christian parenting books. One of those was What the Bible Says About Parenting by John MacArthur. 
and the other was Parenting with Love and Laughter, Finding God in Family Life by Jeffrey Jones. Now, MacArthur is an evangelical radio minister and super author of more than 150 books. John MacArthur and I don't agree on much, especially when it comes to parenting. In his book, Successful Christian Parenting, he said, and I quote, Our children are already marred by sin from the moment they are conceived. The drive to sin is embedded in their very natures. All that is required for the tragic harvest is the children be allowed to give unrestrained expression to those evil desires. In other words, children do not go bad because of something their parents do. They are born sinful, and that sinfulness manifests itself because of what their parents do not do. There's only one remedy for the child's inborn depravity, the new birth, unquote. In other words, to be born again. So, yeah, not much to agree with there. But that's one small quote, about 90 words, right? Comparing the concordances draws on about 50,000 words in his book and 90,000 in mine. So I pulled the concordances and lined them up. Now, the first observation was interesting. These two books, though different in many ways, have the same top three words. Children, parents, and God. Even more interesting is that the secular parenting book mentions God more often, second place instead of third. Now, this isn't as surprising as it might seem. The top four words in quitting smoking for dummies are smoking, smoke, tobacco, and cigarettes. And one of the next things that jumps out is the relative importance of obedience. What the Bible says about parenting uses the word obey 66 times and obedience 49 times, while the same words appear only six and four times, respectively, in Parenting Beyond Belief, even though it's nearly twice as long. As a percentage of text, the words obey and obedience appear 22 times more often in the religious parenting book than in the non-religious one. Well, then I looked at two mainstream bestsellers, Parenting from the Inside Out and I Was a Really Good Mom Before I Had Kids, neither of which includes obey or obedience in the top 100. That's interesting. Words like think, question, idea, and reason are common in Parenting Beyond Belief, but none of those made the top 100 in what the Bible says about parenting. And there were other words in his top 100 that didn't make it into mine. In addition to obey and obedience, there is sin, duty, evil, fear, authority, discipline, command, commandment, submit, and law. But before we make a sweeping assumption about religious parenting, 
What about that other Christian parenting book I mentioned, Parenting with Love and Laughter? That one takes a more liberal religious approach. Of the 13 words I just listed, obey, obedience, fear, submit, and so on, not a single one appears in the top 100 of Parenting with Love and Laughter. In fact, exactly half of the top 50 words in that Christian parenting book are also in the top 50 of Parenting Beyond Belief. So not only do I get a sense of the essence of each book, I also get a strong hint of their values and a pretty good indication that the liberal religious parent shares more values with the secular parent than with the conservative religious parent, and that an obsessive focus on obedience is one of the key dividing lines. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, is just brimming with stories praising obedience over all else. Eve and the apple. Lot's nameless wife disobeyed an order not to look back at her dying friends and neighbors and was turned into a condiment for it. And then, of course, there is the most grotesque story that has ever been loved. Abraham's unquestioning obedience to God's command that he kill his son. And for that insanely immoral obedience, that willingness to follow any order without thinking, Abraham earned the praise of the Lord and became the patriarch of three world religions. It's a painful irony that the father of Judaism pretty much lays the foundation for the Nuremberg defense. I was just following orders. Now, you'd think Abraham's willingness to murder his innocent child because a disembodied voice ordered him to do so would be a cautionary tale against unthinking obedience, but no. Abraham is held up as an example of what we should all do. The story is told to children as a glorious example of faith. Now, to see just how unthinking people can be about the horror of that story, Google... Abraham and Isaac coloring page. And the love of unthinking obedience is not limited to religion by any means. In 1899, an American writer named Albert Hubbard wrote an essay called A Message to Garcia. It tells the story of Andrew Summers Rowan, an American military officer who received a difficult order in the run-up to the Spanish-American War, and he carried it out without asking, as Hubbard put it, any idiotic questions. The order? Deliver a message from President William McKinley to rebel leader Calixto Garcia, enlisting Garcia's help against the Spanish. Rowan did so, against tremendous odds. Now, never mind that the Spanish-American War is seen by the consensus of historians as one of the most shameful and cynical military adventures in U.S. history, which is quite an achievement if you think about the competition. I'm not even mostly interested in Rowan's act or the question of soldiers following orders in the field. I'm interested 
in what the drooling admiration of the rest of us over this tale of unquestioning obedience says about us. My heart goes out to the man who, when given a letter for Garcia, quietly takes the missive without asking any idiotic questions and with no lurking intention of chucking it into the nearest sewer or of doing aught else but deliver it, never gets laid off. In the foreword to a later edition of the book, Hubbard recounts with glee the instant demand for copies in the millions. Quote, A copy of the booklet was given to every railroad employee in Russia, he says, as well as every Russian soldier who went to the front in the Russo-Japanese War. And then, quote, the Japanese, finding the booklets in possession of the Russian prisoners, concluded it must be a good thing and accordingly translated it into Japanese, after which a copy was given to every man in the employ of the Japanese government, soldier or civilian. Over 40 million copies of a message to Garcia have been printed, Hubbard Crows, thanks to a series of lucky accidents. These were not lucky accidents. These were humans taking every opportunity to advance the virtue of unquestioning obedience. But why? Well, it's easy to see why the powerful call unquestioning obedience a virtue. Message to Garcia is allegedly assigned by U.S. military brass as required reading for the enlisted. I get that. CEOs also buy copies in the thousands for their employees. I can see why they would. But why do so many of those employees lap it up? Why do those of us at lower pay grades find encouragement and comfort in the idea of shutting up and doing what we're told? I think it's the same thing that fuels religion. It's the human fear of disorder. Order means safety. The idea that someone somewhere has a handle on the variables and infinite wisdom, and then we just have to follow their orders to be safe and secure, whether it's a god or a general or a CEO. That offers a much more fundamental reassurance than the messy process of discourse. Questions bring disorder. So confidently following the orders of superiors gets our vote. But what if the superior is wrong? What if the order is immoral? Ah, questions. A question mark is a curving road to hell, people. Just do it and teach your kids the same. If you don't mind having them follow a straight line to the dark side once in a while. Researchers Samuel and Pearl Oliner conducted more than 700 interviews with survivors of Nazi-occupied Europe. Included were both rescuers, those who actively rescued victims of Nazi persecution, and non-rescuers, those who were either passive in the face of the persecution or actively involved. The study revealed interesting differences in the upbringing of the two groups. Virtually everyone 
said that morality was taken seriously in the home when they were growing up. But there were striking differences in the language and practices that parents used to teach their values. Non-rescuers were 21 times more likely than rescuers to have been raised in families that emphasized obedience, being given rules that were to be followed without question. Rescuers were over three times more likely than non-rescuers to identify reasoning as an element of their moral education. The word explained, the authors said, was the single most common word used by rescuers in describing their parents' way of talking about rules and ethical ideas. My parents explained why it was wrong to do X and right to do Y. The ethicist Jonathan Glover applied the same questions to the genocides in Bosnia and Rwanda and came to similar conclusions. Dictating a set of authority-based rules to be followed without question turns out to be the worst thing we can do for ethical development, yet we are continuously urged to do exactly this because it feels ever so decisive and bold. The alternative to unquestioning obedience is not chaos. It starts with attachment parenting, more on that in an upcoming episode, and continues by explaining the reasons behind the rules and inviting the questioning of authority, including our own. That doesn't mean kids have permission to disregard our decisions and our rules. It means they are invited to challenge our decisions to ask for the reasons behind them, even to try to change our minds. But at the end of the process, while they are children, our decision is going to be final. And if they disregard a decision, there are consequences. So it isn't a choice between anarchy and fascism. Giving our kids permission to know the reasons behind our decisions and even to question those decisions shows them respect, helps them develop their own reasoning abilities, keeps us honest by ensuring our reasons are indeed defensible and further defeats and diminishes the ability of later authorities to make them into compliant, unquestioning automatons, voting and spending and acting and thinking as they are told and waving the flags they are handed. If you want to raise powerfully ethical kids, teach them to ask those, quote, idiotic questions and to insist on knowing the reasons behind what they are told to be and do. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers. Thinkers.